family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, and we look forward to two hours of conversational improvisation, music, some literary gems, a little existential philosophy, and we always have a few laughs. Today, some of the topics we'll be discussing with our co-hosts I'll introduce in a moment. We are entering the augmented age. What does that mean? Einstein and God. He had some interesting things to say about God. Didn't believe in a biblical God, but he wasn't an atheist. We'll get into that. What's the deal with one fell swoop? Phrases that we take for granted that have very intriguing histories. Helping us with our improvisational conversation, our two co-hosts are Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan, Radio Woodstock on-air weekend warrior Ron Van Warmer. Our guest at 8.30 will be a literary publicist and world-class book collector, Victor Galata. And we'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, an existential wrap-up with street philosopher Patrick Carlin, and we'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. Lot to do. Fasten your seatbelts. Let's get started. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Let's get ready to rumble. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Good Doug. Good to see you, Ron. How are you? I am great today, thanks. Victoria, you were commenting on Ron's sweater, <laughs> yeah. very collegiate, but kind of collegiate 1950s. 50, yeah, 1958 yeah. or something. And yet it works. With white bucks. I'm it's, feeling retro. It's lovely. It's <laughs> For those who don't see it, it's several colors and it's sort of diamonds. It's not yeah. actually a style that's in that much anymore. It would be sort of like Land's End 25 years ago or yeah. something. Yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> Looking very sharp. But, but it looks good. It looks, radio. It, it, it but it looks good him. on you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing a kilt. Yeah. Actually, your, your vest is pretty spiffy. It's yeah. got very tiny little squares. Well, this is, um, you know, it, the whole thing about layering. It's one of the uh -huh. few things I learned that, that has practical application in my life is that to dress for the cold, you don't get the one heavy sweater, nope. the heavy jacket. Nope. Layers. Yep. Did you learn that in school? No. No. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> Life. Because Life taught him that. All right. You ready for this now? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I have a something to say to all the straight A students out there. Okay. All the, and particularly those who have sons or daughters or if we have students listening to us. Don't do it. <laughs> it's not worth it. The evidence is getting clear. 
people who obsess about getting straight A's not only make themselves crazy, but they don't necessarily get better jobs. Yeah. But also, and a lot of them have nervous breakdowns. That's an obsession on the grade per se, as opposed to on the learning, and that's where there is the problem. Because as you know, I was an academic for many years, and you'd get these students that were so hyped on getting the A, and you'd think, well, don't you want to enjoy the course, or wouldn't you like to write me an interesting paper? You know, the the A is meaningful and not meaningful. It does mean you've mastered something that gives you that A, but it doesn't mean that you're incredibly bright. Most, uh, But most of the time, certainly we baby boomers growing up, and I went to a very highly rated public high school. It's not about the fact that getting an A in itself is bad. Of course it's not. If it, if it shows that you really excelled in something. It's the obsession with the grade. Because right. when we were growing up, we were taught that the grade was crucial. It was more important, the grade was more important than the fact that you loved the experience of learning, which got you the A. Right. The purpose of the A was because that will get you into a better college, which will get you a better job, which will make you a happier person. Well, the other thing is that the, the, the straight A, because, for instance, in college, if I had students who were majoring in computer science or something, and they didn't want to take my literature course because I probably wouldn't give them an A, even though they might have found it interesting. I liked the students better that said, I don't care whether you give me a B or not. I feel like taking this course. Well, when I was in school, I didn't do well. I didn't do well in school, and I didn't like it, and I quit. And then when I went to college, I really enjoyed it. And, and I took a biology class, which I had, I had no skill in at all in school, and I really enjoyed it. And the professor and I used to have some philosophical discussions during class. And Kids in the back would go, yeah, but what does this have to do with the test? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The test and the like, grade per uh, se. <laughs> so here's why we're getting into this. Uh, we could have had the same conversation 50 years ago, and it would have been just as accurate, but not as relevant, because you could make a case, a very strong case, that it was, you still probably needed the A's to be a successful person and have a successful career. Uh, the fact is that now it's obviously crazy. Uh, there's an article in today, opinion piece in today's uh, New York Times by Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist. Here's what he writes. The evidence is clear. Academic excellence is not a strong predictor of career excellence anymore. Hmm. Now, he's not saying go ahead and flunk all your classes, okay? What he's saying is the obsession with getting straight A's has no uh, logic. You can't show with any kind of accuracy that this is going to make you a happier, better Not person or a have a stronger success. career. Across industries, research shows the correlation between grades and job performance is modest in the first year after college and trivial within a handful wow. of years. For example, at Google, once employees are two or three years out of college, their grades have no bearing on their performance. <clears throat> academic grades rarely assess qualities such as, to make your point, Victoria, as a professor, creativity, leadership, and teamwork skills, or social, emotional, and political intelligence. Straight-A students master cramming information and regurgitating it on exams, but career success is rarely about finding the right solution to a problem. Hmm. Career success is more about finding the right problem to solve. 
In other words, <clears throat> we were taught whatever we put in front of you, <clears throat> get an A. The point now is find something that turns your mind on. Find something that you really love and excel at, and your chances of having a successful career are much better. And you'll probably get the A. <clears throat> Or not. If you're if you're interested, well, you in know, the topic. if you also look at transcripts, and I thought about that a lot when I was teaching. You know, how is this going to look on someone's transcript? But if someone had a lot of A's in physics, and you needed someone strong in physics, that's more important than if you look down and you see that they did poorly in some other course. Now, their grade point average might come out to, you know. 3.8, let's say, and you've got a 4.0 student up there, or 3.7 or 3.6, because your grades will be pulled down by a low grade in um, me right. in a high school, home ec, because the home ec teacher didn't I'm like me. I'm shocked to hear you didn't do well in home ec. I did very poorly <laughs> in home ec. Besides, I was a wise ass, and it took me a long time in high school to realize, because I did brilliantly in some classes you know and not in others. You know what doesn't work? A wise ass with an apron on. No. It doesn't work. <laughs> But uh, I finally figured out around 10th or 11th grade, you know what? It's not really worth twitting those teachers who I think are twits because they will get even with you with their mm. grades. I had a teacher in math who every time I annoyed her in class, she took a point off. What would you do to annoy her? Well, I'd be giggling and talking with other kids. Or One time I did a drawing of her making her look very bad. And she walked around and she looked down and she said, who is that? Because she saw it. And it's like, I said, who do you think it is? <laughs> well, good for you. Just being mm. me. Yeah. You know, mm. But she took off points. So like, I got maybe 100 on all the tests. I was good at math. But she gave me maybe like an 88 because I had 12 times offended her so much that I got a point off my grade. So that 88 didn't really reveal my math skills. <laughs> it revealed my inability to get along with the teacher. Well, it yeah. turns out that even in the go-go 60s when we were taught better get those good grades up, a classic 1962 study, a team of psychologists tracked down America's most creative architects and compared them with their technically skilled but less original peers. One of the factors that distinguished the creative architects was a record of spiky grades. In college, creative architects earned about a B average back in the 60s. Okay? In work and courses which taught their interest, they could turn in a performance, but in courses they, that failed to strike their imagination, they were quite willing to do no work at all. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like me. And creative people are like that. <laughs> Getting straight A. See, the, the, the point being made here is a little different than the point you're making, Victoria, Not, and yours is just as correct, but it's slightly different. And I'm going to give a story I've told many years ago about um, someone, a, a good friend of mine in my teens, who's quite an instructive story about all this. But uh, your point was, listen, there's nothing wrong with getting straight A's if it's a result of the fact that you love the course and you did well. Here's, here's the point made in, in this article. Getting straight A's requires conformity. Straight A's, yes. Okay. Having an influential career demands originality particular this was back, it was true in the 60s but it was tougher to see back then because we were more and that's why the 60s was became such a nonconformist revolution because suddenly we exploded out of this total bs that we were taught that kind of 50s you know career man uh you know uh, who usually turned into willie loman or <laughs> um you know uh, John Foster Dulles, who that, that you know, this, or the man in the gray flannel suit. Right, the man in the gray flannel suit is a better analogy. 
Um, okay, valedictorians are very unlikely to be future visionaries, mm-hmm. according to studies. They typically settle into the system instead of shaking it up. Mm-hmm. Now, as revolutionary as the 1960s were, the times we are living in right now are even more radical. And I'm not talking about you know, the different types of dress or political rallies and all that stuff. I'm talking about the, the zeitgeist itself, the spirit of the age. We are going through, which is one of the main themes of this program, some of the most enormous and fast changes that human beings have ever experienced. A lot of it is not quite visible. It's all this, it's, it's, it's expanding computer intelligence and, and it's, according to an article I wrote, it's, it's evidence that's leading us to the next renaissance and it's also creating mass anxiety at the same time, which is, by the way, true of the Italian uh, uh, renaissance and what followed mm-hmm. that. You don't get a renaissance without mass anxiety because when you're, when you're about on the precipice of a huge change, it's, it's anxious time because you can't, we, no one can predict where this is going. And even those of us who like to think of ourselves as creatives and visionaries and uh, uh, willing to, to fight the, you know, the, the standard culture and be nonconformists, even if we're honest, we're not that comfortable unless we kind of have a feeling of where we're going. And right now, it's hard to say, particularly in the job market. So millennials and the Generation Z after them are, st- are realizing, number one, wait a minute, I got a trillion and a half dollars worth of college debt, right? Why am I being penalized for going to college? That's number one. Number two, even if I got straight A's, doesn't mean I'm going to get a good job anymore. The economy is changing under my feet, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, in other words, I paid all this money and I've got all this debt to go to a college I worked my ass off, and now I'm not even guaranteed a good job. They're, they get it. So the whole nature of education is going to change kicking and screaming. Academia is going to literally get blown up. Because why would anybody in their right mind pay $50,000 a year to go to a college with no guarantee that it's going to get you a great career? And when... You can go online and find the best teachers in the world. So what we're going to see is more online universities. We're going to mm-hmm. see uh, people going to more. We have very, we're lucky in our community here in the Minnesota Valley, we have excellent community colleges, right? Yeah. That are like one-tenth the cost of going to an elite school. So you're going to see huge changes in education because our educational system <coughs> is asked backwards and doesn't work. I know several students now who are getting their master's degrees and they don't ever go to class. It's all online. Mm-hmm. And it's from major universities, but they just don't go to class. They just do it online. There was, oh, but what about all the social interaction and stuff? There are plenty of places to get social interaction. It doesn't have to be in a college dorm. Yeah, yeah. For $50,000 a year or whatever it costs. What is it, Seventy five. I don't even know what it is anymore. It's in the 70s, I believe. In the 70s, right? I think you So I can have a dormitory it. experience? Right. 
I think human contact <laughs> shouldn't be too put down. I think you can get a lot online, no question. If you have a highly specific thing you want to learn, you can go in and get that highly specific information. But I think what a liberal arts education used to do, and I'm not sure it does anymore, it used to attempt, is to give you a number of fields, show you, or you showed on your own, how those things interacted with each other, you had the opportunity to be in a classroom with some other people who were bright and had ideas sparking off each other. I mean, the best college teaching and the best college institutions, I still think, give you an edge. Because the interesting thing is all these people that are doing very well, whether it's in the law or in uh, the tech industry, a lot of them went to the best schools. That's a fact. Okay, hold on now. That's a fact. But... But the, fa- but the other <laughs> fact is that computer technology, and it's not going to affect us baby boomers as much as millennials and Generation Z, uh, the whole nature of law and business is shifting. That's the point. When we were growing up, if you wanted to be a successful, let's take your point, a successful career, you were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, right? Or an academic. Or an academic. <laughs> um, you... Uh, you would go to it, yes, if you went to a really good school and got good grades, you got into a better medical school, better legal school. Not just getting good grades, school. being at the school. I, I don't quite buy your thing that you can get the same kind of education online. In certain Hold ways, it, that's it can not be what very I'm saying. good. Let me, let me complete the thought then. Obviously, if you're, stu- if you're sitting in your basement in your parents', in your parents house uh, studying online and you're, and you're, you're, you're going to become uh, a very uninteresting human being, there are ways of getting... That same, ex- I agree with you. To me, the two things that I got from college were one professor who opened my mind in a philosophy class, brilliant professor, okay, uh, number one, and being in that class was important, be- right? And two, meeting interesting people. I'm not disagreeing with that. Is that worth $75,000 a year, number one? And number two, who's got that kind of money anymore? I mean, how many people can afford that? But I think schools in general from from kindergarten up have the potential to make it a learning environment as opposed to a test-taking environment. Of course it has the potential, but we haven't reached that potential or come close to it. Uh, yeah, if you, you know, there, there are alternative schools that do exactly that. Um, uh, there are Steiner schools, I forget what they're called. Um, uh, there are schools that do that, but those are private schools that you have to pay for. Our public school education is not about what you're talking about. Some of it tries to be. I think that's the direction that education is trying to go, haltingly and stumblingly. But I do think that there's a recognition. And I have uh, people in my family who are in college now, and how colleges are being taught is very different. The kinds of courses they ca- take, the kinds of expectations they're meeting in those classes. It's not the same way it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Because they're having to change. If they don't, they'll be out of business. Okay, but they But as changing. a general rule, uh, and I'm happy to be proven I'm wrong, in most top universities, you don't get synergy courses. You don't get a course where a philosophy teacher and a physics teacher and a poet teach a course together so that we can, we can learn what connects wisdom and knowledge. We do you get become some a major, everybody is sequestered into their own little fiefdoms. There's a psychology department that has very little communication with the physics department. That's insane. It's not the way 
the mind works at its best. It's not the way education works at its best. A- until someone proves it differently, our educational system, including the top universities, are fiefdoms. They they, they beat each other up uh, politically over um, uh, what, what do you call um, when uh, after a few years you get your tenure. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to publish or perish. All that same crap still exists. A lot of that exists, but there's also changes. You know, my brother-in-law, who's a top scientist, he started out in zoology, then he went into biology, then he went into physics, then he went back into biology. Every and what time did that had, cost him? Uh, he had a very successful career, and, and he won a lot of prizes, and he's in the... Um, no, what did it cost money-wise for him to go through all that those changes at, the, at a high level? Uh I don't think hundreds it, of thousands of dollars unless you it, get why? a scholarship. No, he was he did this not as he was a student. Once he was a scientist, they saw, but oh, did, you're in this department, but we could use you in this when he went back oh, okay. and forth because there was this overlap. It turns out between physics and biology. This was at Harvard. And and, you know, when he started working with the people in the physics, because what he was doing in biology intersected with that, they said, well, let's give you an office here. I mean, I'm, they know this now. They know this much more. This is all some of this is recent, the last 10, 15, 20 years. Well, they're going to have to notice a lot more quickly and a lot more expansively if they want to exist, because um, and again, by the time we get to college, as Ron pointed out, there is more freedom to choose your own courses. OK, Um but let's talk about grade school and junior high school and high school. Where's the creativity? My sister is a high school teacher. I should have her on the air once. We'll have to, of course, we'll have to censor most of what she's going to say. <laughs> but um, uh, Redact. She, uh, she is apoplectic. All she cares about um, is turning her students on. And she has to fight the administration yeah. in her high school every day to do that. Oh, every with, day it's a subject? fight to be creative right. and not have to just follow the, right. the crap that they're, to, that they're forced to what teach kids. What is her kids. subject? Italian. Okay. I see students all the time. I work with students who are volunteering mm-hmm. and they're all from the private schools around the area because the public schools don't have time to actually give the students an opportunity to go out and do something different. Which is too bad. Yeah, it is. They've got to change their mindset. I totally agree. I mean, I had to fight all the time, but there were always people at my college, a few people that usually left after a few years, and then I had to develop some new ones, who understood what I was trying to do and said, you know, we'll fund you with anything you want to do, Victoria, because you know how to bring poets into the classroom. You know how to get writers to come to the school. And how much fighting But a lot of people resisted me. Yeah. How much fighting did you have to do to get that? A lot. Yeah. And you were willing (laughs) to do it, and you got through it, and good for you. Uh, the, the point is that uh, for most people, it's exhausting. Instead of the energy, think of the energy you could have used or people could use opening students' minds instead of fighting all these, the, the, the bureaucracy and this, this One mindset. problem that I will agree with you on is that administrators often are not as creative. And I think it's a big problem. And, and I've seen it in colleges where they think that they're going corporate so they start getting people who have degrees in administration. I did much better when our deans came through the academic system and the dean was a former professor right. because they got it better than these people who specialized in uh, bean counting. Well, it's just like hospitals that have administrators and not doctors who become administrators. Yes, there's a real change that that corporate headset thing set a lot of people back because it also was everything was accountability. And they wanted me to always say exactly what I based my grades on. 2% on this, 3% on this, 7% on this. 
And finally, I would just make stuff up because <laughs> I knew I was going to grade on, did I think this person wrote an interesting paper? Did they do well on the exams? Did they say interesting things in class? So I it, couldn't rank what exact percent was each of those things. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, the... Uh, the tail that's wagging the dog right now, which is Silicon Valley, right? I mean, the most power. When we were growing up, the most powerful corporations in the world were General Motors, uh, some of the banks, Chase Manhattan Bank, IBM, right? Um, you know, starch shirt tie organizational men. Who's running the show now? Google, Apple, Apple. Amazon, Microsoft. Okay. What's the difference? By the way, they're just as much jerks as the other ones be, as we're seeing. I mean, look at Facebook. I mean, the, uh, the greed, you know, to just make more money at the expense of humanity is welcome to being a human being. Uh, uh, that hasn't changed. But here's what has changed. These corporations, which are now the most powerful corporations in the world, want people who are creative and willing to try things. And in fact, the reason, if you, if you read the history of Silicon Valley, the reason they so quickly overtook General Motors and became more powerful than banks is because they hired people and said, go ahead and experiment. What does that mean? Go ahead and fail. Now you can't fail all the time, but go ahead. We're not yeah. gonna. We're not going to pay you, which is the way corporations grade, based on you're succeeding all the time. You can't invent something if you're not failing. Right. The article that you gave us said uh, Steve Jobs had less than a three point average. Yeah. A two point six something average. Right. Yeah. He did okay. Yeah, it's true that 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 corporate mentality, the the former one, the banker one, or whatever, when that trickles down into colleges as it has, it's not a good mentality because it's non-creative. And what we've done is, we, and we're going to have a, we have a YouTube if we'll get to it today. Very good TED talk. Uh, we'll play a few minutes of uh, who points out we've gone from we we the evolution is about to go through a major leap, okay, and now we know where it's going to leap from. We don't know where it's leaping to, although we have a lot of evidence. <laughs> that we present on this program and we can find up on the internet. We went from being hunter-gatherers, which if you think about it, when we were hunter-gatherers, we weren't that different from other animals. Most animals are hunter-gatherers. Then the big invention that really separated us in terms of intelligence from the animal kingdom was agriculture. agriculture. Mm. Because the invention of agriculture made it possible for human beings to live in community, right. and by living in more of a community, right? An ant colony is a community, but it's a separate community. By expanding the notion of community, and, and you, you can't have cities without agriculture, okay? Um, you can't have towns without agriculture. By creating that, you exponentially increased the amount of creativity intelligence in an area because more people could, could, could thrive in an mm-hmm. area because of agriculture. Then the next big leap was the industrial age. We know about its advantages, and we damn well know about the disadvantages: <laughs> pollution, yeah, and what about the and and just the the whole idea of being a factory worker and what that does to your you know uh, brain. But um, now we're in the computer age, whole big deal, and that's and suddenly Silicon Valley now runs the world because we're in the computer age. But we're about to make a leap from the computer age. The person we may get to today calls the next 
phase, the augmented age, which is as good as name as any of I've heard, okay? Meaning that between exponentially increasing computer intelligence and miniaturized computer chips, which are already being implanted into human brains and bodies, Mm -hmm. and that is going to intersect with something we haven't seen a lot of yet, but get ready, and that is genetic engineering, because we now have the ability to edit our own genes. And we have seen some of that with recently the Chinese uh, doctor that uh, put uh, that altered the genes of the two twins that were born. Correct. Uh, so now, look out. Where does this take us? We are going to become augmented. We are not going to be the same homo sapiens we've been. Yeah. Um, we're going to get modified. And the difference is that instead of waiting for the evolutionary process to modify our brains, which is how it's worked so far, uh, we're going to have um, an active role in it. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's kind of analogous to the agriculture thing because agriculture not only made cities and things possible, but it was the beginning of control of nature mm-hmm. because you you made a lot of things grow in one place mm-hmm. so you could feed a lot of people. You altered nature in effect. Mm-hmm. Things didn't naturally grow in, in fields. But if in the big picture, and this is the big, big picture, uh, We human beings, whether we like it or not, we came out of nature. We are part of nature. Mm -hmm. So it could be argued that when Homo sapiens, our ancestors, started manipulating nature to create farming and agriculture so that towns and cities could be created, right, that was still nature doing its work because we are part of nature. Right. Um, So, um, uh, and we being part of nature, have created artificial intelligence, which is teaching itself right now. You see, that's the part where we can't predict where this thing is going. But we did set it up so that it could do that. But no, here's the difference. Yes, we have an influence. But it's the fact of the matter is that we now have a computer Right? They said, okay, a computer can beat the best chess player in the world, but chess is a game where there are a limited number of permutations. But they'll never beat the best Go player because Go is a more complex game than chess and requires intuition, and computers and machines can't be intuitive. Wrong! Uh, a few years ago, a computer beat the best Go player in the world. But here's where it gets really interesting or frightening or exciting, depending upon your point of view. Now, that computer that beat the best Go player in the world taught another computer how to play Go. That computer beat the computer that taught it, <laughs> and that computer no longer needs a human being to teach it. And now It's there's, teaching itself. There's a computer that Google has, has that they gave it the rules to chess, and it taught itself to play, and Correct. now beats everybody. That's right. So... This they, game is, they didn't give it the rule. They just told it the rules. This game is right. changing. Okay, it is changing, but it also depends a little bit on your definition of intuition, because we think of intuition as something like "ooh, intuition," but really, maybe intuition is just a very complicated algorithm, which is what machines can do. And that's that's exactly where the rub is now. Just so it's clear, having written about this and and, and reading this every day. Uh, it's complex. None of us have all the answers. But this is why 
it's so important that we, if our educational system doesn't do it, we need to do it ourselves, is focus more on what's called the right hemisphere of our brains. The right hemisphere is the more creative, intuitive part of our brain. And the left hemisphere, which has been the dominant hemisphere of our educational system, which is we want you to memorize things, we want you to be organized, we want you to follow the rules. Those are important things. You can't have a working society without those factors, right? That's left hemisphere thinking. Computers are already better at that than we are. But computers cannot yet match us in intuitive, creative aspects of the right hemisphere of our brain. And yet most of our educational system is left hemisphere. That's where the shift has to happen for exactly those reasons because we have to, we have to learn more about what intuition is. Uh, because if we don't, then we become irrelevant. Yeah, what we call intuition, uh, as I say, I think when you think about it, particularly where you see how well computers are doing with medical things, they just have so much more capacity to contain data than we have and to match the data quickly. And when you match enough data, you arrive at something that we might want to call intuition. Mm -hmm. This is, you're, you're, you're touching on, to me, the crucial philosophical question, which is how relevant are human beings going to be 20, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? Uh, I think still very relevant, but that's only if <laughs> we understand what the hell's going on and, and what our true nature is and what does intelligence really mean, right? Daniel Goldman kind of threw out the gauntlet when he throughout the book Emotional Intelligence and said IQ is not enough, right? IQ, intelligent quotient, right. the way we were all graded and evaluated mm -hmm. didn't take emotional intelligence into being. There's a, there's a potential spiritual intelligence that computers aren't close to having. But now we're really into some sticky waters, right? What is spiritual intelligence? <laughs> um, so, but these are now things, we can leap into Einstein. That's right, because <laughs> if we don't start asking these questions, and if our educational system doesn't start fertilizing the ground for this, we are going to become irrelevant. We'll be back. <laughs> Uh, this is the Woodstock Roundtable, am I right? You uh, and um, I'm Doug Grantham, your host. Our co-host, Victoria Sullivan, our poet laureate. She'll be favoring us with a poem a little bit later on. On-air warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Wormer is here. I will not be around next Sunday. So um, have fun, yeah. Uh, because yeah, I'm, uh, we're uh, planning to. We're going to we're going to defend the old school system. Oh, good of yeah. memorization and just stuffing your head with facts. Good. Uh, and is everyone listening going to get graded? <laughs> yes. they're all going to get straight A's if they tune in. Oh wow! There you go. I like that Jeez. curve system. <laughs> right. There are a lot of teachers like that in my school that wanted to be popular, and they just gave everyone an A. Ooh, I like that idea. <laughs> that was very irresponsible. I thought. 
Well, at any rate, I'm fortunate to have a friend who um, has is retired and has decided to spend half the year in Florida. Ah, very and, nice. Um, Good so time to get away. He said, hey, come on down for a week. Uh, you know, no one's going to be here. Well, I said, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So anyway, have fun next week on Thank air. Thank you. All right. And you have fun in Florida. I will. And I don't know that I'm going to wake up to listen. I, I, I probably end up with <laughs> But I'll definitely catch you on demand. Yeah, yes. there you go. And okay. why don't you explain that a little bit, Ron? It's actually kind of a cool technology. On demand means you can listen to this program and many other programs anytime you want. You just go to RadioWoodstock.com. I'll be putting this program up uh, before I leave at 11 o'clock uh, this morning. So it'll so be there. So people can go online and, it, and uh, a bunch of Radio Woodstock programs are up there, including ours. And uh-huh. how many of our programs are up there? Um, there's a couple of dozen at the moment. So you can go back and listen. And the coolest thing is there's a toggle switch. So when you get... Yeah tired of listening to you me rant about uh, education you just take the toggle switch and go forward and that's you can right. hear victoria's poem yeah yeah that's good so anyway i just want to do this a little bit before we get to einstein and god <laughs> i'm reading a book uh, as i am on um uh algorithms and see i don't understand technically computers i'm not uh, i don't i'm not a scientist i'm not a computer engineer but i'm fascinated by the philosophical and psychological ramifications of computer intelligence and how it's affecting our notion of who we are and our own intelligence and as i'm reading this book comes the phrase one fell swoop uh-huh. now it's a fairly commonly used phrase right yeah we all know what it means yeah but I suddenly went, what a great phrase that is. <laughs> it you know, sounds we, good. We take one things fell for granted. Swoop. One <laughs> fell swoop. Right. right. How would you define one fell swoop? Well, I, I, I looked at your thing there. So I, bef- prior to reading about it, I would have said something sudden and definitive. Right. All at once, I would have said, and all and at that, once, something happens. All at once, something happens. And that's exactly what it does mean. But what's it happens effectively too, because sometimes things happen accidentally and and in one fell swoop. But one, I mean, they happen suddenly, but not effectively. One fell swoop always suggests to me that you did it and it worked. Well, I suppose mm, maybe yeah. I think in most cases it is. But could you say, for example, that a certain person has destroyed has uh, basically poisoned our political system in one fell swoop uh, not <laughs> it if could it be was a negative in one, thing. but it but you usually couldn't do it a political system couldn't be destroyed in one fell swoop i mean remember the word one in there good point one fell swoop. that's why it's good to have an english professor right. on the program <laughs> yeah. but you so, could have a negative aspect of one sw- yeah I, it could we, be negative but it's still effective right right, right in okay. other words a bombing raid fair or enough something. yes in one fell <laughs> swoop right yes so it's it's just a beautiful a combination of three words to become something so much more powerful. <laughs> and it's just each one is one syllable. Right. So it's like, it itself it's like one fell swoop. The very three words, it's almost onomatopoetic. Right. <laughs> so uh, I was surprised and tickled to find out that not only was it the phrase originated with Shakespeare, ah. but... When you think of one fell swoop, right, you think something fell and was kind of swallowed up, one right. fell swoop. But it turns out that the word fell is not from the word fall. Ah. 
To do, all right, to do something in one fell swoop is to do it suddenly, I'm reading from an article, or in a single swift action. Right. But fell here, one fell swoop, we think of, now it's obvious if you think about it, grammatically, it's being used as an adjective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's describing a swoop. Right. Right. By the way, how great a word is swoop? <laughs> <laughs> That's onomatopoetic. <laughs> yes. Swoop, right? Yes. So onomatopoetic means it sounds like what it actually is connoting. Yes. Okay. So one fell swoop. What a great phrase. So uh, no shock that Shakespeare came up with it. But the fell is an adjective, not a verb. Uh-huh. One fell swoop. Swoop is the verb, right? No, I think it's no, a No, it's noun. a gerund, isn't it? No, what is it? What is swoop in there? One it's a noun. fell swoop. A swoop is a noun? Yes. But don't we think of it as an action? We think of it, but actions can be nouns. I mean, um, you win a race. Uh, a race is an action, but it, it's the noun. Okay. Is action. So one fell swoop. Fell is an adjective that means fierce, savage, cruel, or ruthless. Oh. It's, an archa- it's an archaic definition preserved mainly in this idiom. And that's another great word, that one fell swoop is an idiom. Mm-hmm. Which is great, because yeah. it sounds like idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so what was Shakespeare's context? It's a great one. It's a really sad moment in Macbeth. Ah, Explain, please, oh well, professor. Well, Macbeth <laughs> it gets very violent against all his enemies and, and kills them. And um, one of his enemies is Macduff. Macduff has a family in the distance. And Macbeth sends in people and has his family killed. And when the Macduff hears about it, he speaks about it, and it ends up with his horror is expressed in that phrase, one fell swoop. Ah, so he, he killed the entire family in one yes, fell swoop. Yes, well, and then he repeats. You've got the quote there, don't you, from Shakespeare somewhere in there? Um, it's possible to imagine context where one foul swoop might make sense. Uh-huh. This must be rare because um, a fell... In the archaic term, could be a blow, stroke, or metaphorically, a bird's sudden sweeping descent from a height. That's how I imagine it. So it's possible to imagine contexts where one foul, F-O-U-L, uh-huh. swoop might make sense, but these must be rare. Foul can mean evil or offensive, F-O-U-L, and some swoops might indeed be evil. Still, one foul swoop is usually a misspelling of one fell swoop. <laughs> Uh, but don't you have the quote there where he by says... By the way, did you ever have one fell soup? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's not good. It's a foul soup. Yeah, Campbell's makes a, a, a one fell foul soup. It's not, very, not recommended. When they go to Shakespeare there, don't they have the quote from Shakespeare? The earliest says, documented instance of one fell swoop is from Shakespeare's Macbeth, 1605. All my pretty ones... Sounds like the Wicked Witch of the See, West. See, this is what he yeah. hears about his kids, and he starts with all my pretty ones. He's oh. these little children. Did you say all? Oh, hell kite. All? A hell kite? Yeah. Um, A kite could swoop as well. Keep going. Yeah. It, read the whole thing, because it's great, because it ends with that I, I line. Cut, I cut off the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, he says, like, my pretty ones. He keeps repeating it. I mean, it's the horror of a man discovering that his family. And then in the end, it's like, my little chicks, my pretty ones. 
in one fell swoop. Uh, I mean, his horror and that his wife and his children have been killed just, you know, slash, 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 slash by the people that Macbeth sent in to kill them. Right. I mean, and, it's like a mob hit. And if you actually use the word chicks, that sounds like, like a vulture yes. going down and swooping yes. down he and plucking the chicks. He refers to his children as my little chicks, my little chicks. Yeah. But what I love and the brilliance of Shakespeare there is not only the language but the repetition of the sort that you have when you're shocked, where you keep saying, I don't believe it, that the person's dead. I, d- I don't believe it. How could that happen? That can't be. You know, we, and Shakespeare gets that. Yeah. So here are some other phrases that originate with Shakespeare that are still alive and well today. As luck would have it. Now, again, there is a <laughs> phrase that we hear all the time and we sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. But let's break it down, how, how interesting that sentence is. As luck would have it. Yes, As he was very interested it. in luck and fate, and our fortune is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. I mean, he's, he gets it like that things are controlled in odd ways, as luck would have it. Mm. Fate, but here, luck fortune. becomes, in essence, an agent, a human, uh, like a human agent, mm-hmm. um, a, 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 an actual force of it in itself. Luck is not something... Right. Uh, passive or inhuman, luck right. is uh, luck would have it this way. Right. I think he's equating luck somewhat there with fate. But luck is a good fate. But but he was very interested in things like fortune and fate and how did these things happen to us? Mm. Okay. Now I haven't looked this up, but I'm, so I'm going to defer to you if you know it. From the Merchant of Venice, Venice, bated breath. Mm. Mm. Bated breath. Is an interesting. It's on. It's alliterative, right? Mm-hmm. Bated breath. Now, b a t e d. What is the meaning? Uh, to abate is to lessen, right? What is bated? Could you Google a yeah. bated breath? What? The, what is? Well, that? I wonder if it's a kind of bait because he often is also not b a i t. It's b a t e d. You think it might come from b a i t? I'm thinking because he's very interested often in like birds and things and baiting birds and how things are trapped. Um, but it could be the withheld abated breath. Bated is a form of abate, which means to diminish, beat down, oh, yeah, or okay. reduce. Mm-hmm. So if you're waiting with bated breath, you're so eager, anxious, excited, or frightened that you're almost holding your breath. Right, withheld, Beautiful. abated, right. But, but I don't know that. You, you need to know the whole thing to really understand okay. it in Shakespeare. You need let's to, just be clear in case people think like I'm some kind of Shakespeare scholar. <laughs> I don't read Shakespeare. I don't go to Shakespearean plays. I don't say that. Happily, I'm just not interested. I'm being honest. Right. I'm not interested. Right. You're missing a lot of greatness. But that but doesn't <laughs> mean that I don't get his genius. Right. And what I love about this subject mm-hmm. is we're able to realize what a genius this guy was, even if I don't have the patience right. or the wherewithal to go to a Shakespearean performance. Um, beta, I mean, to think about it, which which you know which feels more exciting or definitive um i kind of lost my breath or i'm waiting with bated breath mm-hmm. no comparison yeah mm-hmm. no comparison and so we think of shakespeare uh, you know th- i mean the language is so archaic and yet so much of it is now modern but it's also actually way easier to understand than most people realize if you take a shakespeare speech and you just read it slowly and talk about it you can totally get it it's taught badly in school we're back to that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, if I'm watching a Shakespeare play, it takes me usually about 10 minutes to 
to get the language. But after 10 minutes, I'm, I can pretty right. much uh, interpret. And especially with good actors, when you hear the Brits, because they really understand it. Americans kind of have to learn to speak it. But for the Brits, they can say it in a very natural way. To be or not to be, that is the question. You know, whether it is noble or to, you know, like they can say it so that you just hear it. Well, here's one that we use all the time. And again, I take it for granted. I think most people do. And we break it down. What an incredible. And so many of these are, are so pithy. They're so mm-hmm. compact. Uh-huh. And that is modern because, as our friend Marshall McLuhan pointed out, in the electric age, if you think you're going to get people to read long treatises, guess again. In the electric age, things have to to jump cut and bounce off of things and Mm -hmm. interrelate with one another. And you need quick cuts. Boom, boom, boom. You can't long drawn out doesn't play in the electric age. And Shakespeare is that. He has almost an electricity to him. For example, the B from Macbeth, the be all and end all. Mm. Mm -hmm. I take that for granted. Okay, yeah, the be all and the end all. Think about what a brilliant, who, how could you in... (laughs) One, two, three, four, five words or so say so much, so powerfully. Yeah. The be all and the end all. <laughs> and I'm wondering, did Shakespeare originate now, these about, or was he using the language of the time? Nobody invents he from was, whole cloth. He was, he was poetically using the language of his time. Probably most people didn't you know, speak with his brilliance, but it was... He was writing in the language of his time, but he was writing in the language of his time the way someone very eloquent might write in the language of our time. Right. And yet, as I understand it, if you went to a Shakespearean play during Shakespeare's time, it wasn't a bunch of elite um, uh, 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 patrons sitting there in their fine raiments. They were there. But there are also, you know, uh, uh, basic crowds guzzling beer and doing right. whatever and being right. rowdy in the front row. Throwing things at the end. Well, they, yeah. were, they were referred to as the groundlings because they didn't pay for seats. And he would write special stuff for them. There would be scenes that had more <laughs> comic elements. Like right. there's a scene in Macbeth where the guy who's supposed to open the door of the castle is drunk. And that was written for the groundlings. And he's sort of stumbling to the door and he can't get it open and it stops the tension for so a moment it be, of the play. See, I would go to opera, right? If everybody in the damn place wasn't dressed up in suits and ties <laughs> and dresses. Right. Well, if they had some groundlings there, you know, people in, 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 in T-shirts guzzling beer in the front row <laughs> along with everything else, I'd go. Well, you know, the, the Puritans closed the theaters officially. Hmm. Uh, I think it was 1649, uh, 1642 maybe. They closed it because the theaters were also known as places where prostitutes hung out. You know, you could get a customer there. Uh, all kinds of things were sold there. Let's bring it back. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so the theaters were really seen as corrupting uh, mm. by the Puritans. I were all for it. Uh, let's see some more phrases here. Oh, and that, this reminds me of a joke I have to clean up. But <laughs> neither a borrower nor lender be. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. That's, says a that's lot. Polonius and these few truths set down. So you want to hear, I, I don't know if I've told this before, I've got to clean up. <laughs> I have to ask Ron a question off mic here for a second. Turn my mic on. Uh, you know, Ron's more in tune with what the FCC allows and doesn't. Ah. So um, for this joke, <laughs> I'm going to use the first letter of the word and you'll know how the joke should be told. Okay. But this was told by 
one of my favorite old-time comedians, Professor Irwin Corey. I don't know how many people remember Professor <laughs> yeah. Irwin Corey. He was an absolute genius. And you know what? We're all, all right, we'll, t- we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on the break. So now, about <laughs> 30 years ago, a f- good friend of mine was having a major birthday, like a 50th or 6th, whatever it was. And a bunch of us got around and said, oh, we got to do, what are we going to do for him? And everyone said, ah, you know, we'll take him out for dinner. And I went, well, that's boring. What can we do that would be kind of really intriguing and exciting? And I said, let's roast them. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, everyone knows what a roast is, right? That's when people get up and say horrible things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that have some grain of truth in them. That have a grain of truth. And then say, I love you and this and that. Right? right. Okay. So said, now, you dirty, cheap so, bastard. <laughs> right. So everyone goes, that's a great idea. Now I'm going, but wait a minute. Most of the friends are not public speakers. So if they are not good at roasting, it's not going to work. It's a great idea, mm-hmm. but how are we going to make it work? So I go, you know what we have to do? We're going to have to hi- we're going to hire. Let's get a comedian up here. Let's find someone who'll work cheap and we'll hire <laughs> a comedian to run it. And that way it'll have a special thing. So now I'm thinking who can who can it be? And I'm going through my head and I'm thinking, I wonder if Irwin Corey's still alive. Because I was when I was a kid, I loved him on Merv Griffin. Erwin Corey, his bit was, he would come out as a professor, and his hair was all disheveled, and he'd be like in this Groucho Marx, you know, uh, morning suit, uh, with and, and a white uh, rumpled shirt that was hanging out, not tucked in, a string tie, and sneakers. Okay, <laughs> and he would come out. And he would just start double talking and telling Borscht Belt jokes, <laughs> but in the voice of a of a uh, elite professor. It was a great routine, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking he's got to be like 80 years old, 85 years old, but maybe he's around. So I find this. Uh, uh, there's a, a group that represents uh, uh, agents or something, and I call up and they give me the name of his agent, who was his son. And I come up, I say, um, is your father still alive? Uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, he's like 85, but he's still doing occasional performances and stuff. And he's good. I said, well, listen, I got a friend. We want to roast him up in, up in Woodstock. Uh, Irwin was in, in Manhattan. I said, you know, what would it cost? We'll, we'll, we'll send him a town. We'll send a, we'll send a car down, you know, and have him up. What would it cost to have him? You know, we don't have... He said, all right, I'll do it for, you know, whatever it was, 800 bucks or something. So we get like, we have like 12, 15 people coming together. So we hire a town car and we hire Irwin Corey <laughs> as a surprise. We're not telling the, the birthday boy to come up and, and we're not even telling the guests. We're just, it's just a group of us who organized it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's going to be about 50 people at a back room in a restaurant thinking, all right, everyone's going to have dinner and, um, and, you know, say happy birthday to our friend so uh, we set up a little dais now i'm waiting for erwin Corey to show up but first of all i'm excited because i'm an erwin Corey fan right and up comes the town car and out comes erwin in that great you know disheveled outfit of his <laughs> and his wife was properly dressed i said professor Corey, pleasure to meet you doug right there he goes this is woodstock where the hell's the joint <laughs> <laughs> So someone came out with a joint, and um, we took him into the back office because we wanted it to be a surprise, right? And um, uh, and his wife's saying, get me a martini. <laughs> so she's getting high on martinis. He's getting high on, 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 on marijuana. 
And now I go out into in front of and I get it. We have a microphone set up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be roasting our good friend and here to host it. Please welcome Professor Irwin Corey. Well, our friend, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He was so excited. <laughs> Irwin Corey here, right? <laughs> and out comes Irwin Corey. Now, here's what he does. i got to explain it, okay? <laughs> I know it's not visual, but he, he comes out. The place is going crazy. It's Professor Irwin Corey. He's 85 years old. He's about five foot two and wearing this ridiculous outfit with his hair disheveled, you know. And he steps up to the podium and he has some papers and he starts shuffling the papers. He hasn't said a word. And he purposely, he drops the papers. He goes down to pick them up. He bangs his head on the podium <laughs> purposely, right? Now he's looking like he's disoriented. People are starting to get hysterical, right? He hasn't said a word yet. He picks up the papers. He starts to organize them. They drop again. He goes to get them. He hits his head on the podium again. <laughs> he picks it up. Now he starts adjusting the microphone and start you know, doing, you know, banging his hand into it to see if it's working. <laughs> Hasn't said a word yet, and the place is hysterical. <laughs> he goes to about five minutes of this. The crowd quiets down, and his first words are... <clears throat> And in conclusion, <laughs> the place goes wild, right? I'm wild. Our friend, the birthday boy, is wild. Right? Now he starts doing shtick, right? He's telling jokes. He's double talking. And he tells the following joke. And we're, this all was based on the fact that we're uh, praising uh, Shakespeare for how he could say something complicated so succinctly succinctly and powerfully mm. like neither a borrower nor lender be right so Irwin Corey now tells the following joke which I will have to change a little bit <laughs> <clears throat> a wealthy dowager pulls up in her limousine to a fine restaurant uh, her uh, chauffeur gets out opens the back door and out she comes and as she's entering the fine restaurant, she notices sitting on the sidewalk with a tin cup, a beggar. And he waves the cup at her and she looks down at him very snootily and says, Sir, neither a borrower nor lender be Shakespeare. And the bum looks up at her and says, F you, Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break.